Now, obviously, you already know this because you're here today, but for the benefit of anyone who's going to be watching or listening uh, to this on our website or on Vimeo, I need to just start by explaining that we've just done a child dedication. And that during the ceremony, we made it clear, as we always do, that actually we can't make any child be dedicated to anything in the sense of dictating the outcome of their life for them. And nor, quite honestly, would we wish to. We said that what's really happening in a dedication is that it's the parents who are dedicating themselves to how they're going to bring up their child with Jesus at the centre. And it got me thinking during the week about what being dedicated with Jesus at the centre might mean for all of us. Now, you may say dedicating our lives is the sort of thing that monks do and nuns do, you know, people like Mother Teresa, that it's not something that ordinary people like us do. But I want to suggest to you this morning that actually everyone is dedicated. The only question is who or what it is that we're dedicated to. Now, if you look at the dictionary definitions of being dedicated, it will often start by talking about ceremonies, like when some VIP opens a new building. But it has some other meanings as well. So one of those is to do with exclusivity, like a dedicated phone line or some area of a building that's set apart for a particular special purpose. But what dedication mainly means is to do with being devoted. And what that means is to focus on something with a passion to the exclusion of other things that would compete with it. Rather like university students devoting their time to studying, or alternatively, devoting their time to partying, as the case may be, especially in the first two years and 11 months of their degree course. (laughs) Now, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, it says that being dedicated means this giving most or all of our time or resources to a particular activity. So if we think of being dedicated in terms of what we give all or most of our time and resources to, then really we're all dedicated, aren't we? Because we all make choices about how we use our time and our resources in favour of some things to the exclusion of other things. It's just that we don't normally use words like devoted or dedicated to describe it. And the reason for that, I think, is because we tend to think of the time that we've got available to dedicate to anything as being the time that we've got left over after all the things that we have to do. We think that devotion is something that only happens at the margins. So our logic runs like this. We obviously have to work. We obviously have to look after our children. We obviously have to go and see our friends and our family. We obviously have to have leisure time and hobbies and weekends away. We obviously have to go shopping and wash our hair and catch up with our box sets. We obviously have to take our children to their sports and their clubs and their sleepovers. Every single one of them that humankind has ever invented in the whole of the Vale of Aylesbury. And whenever we say, obviously, in relation to any of these things that we have to do, 
what we're doing is subconsciously subtracting that time from the time that we think we have available to be devoted to anything. Whereas actually, those are all things that we're already devoted to. Now, one of the ways that we can tell what we're devoted to is what happens when there's more than one thing in competition for some of our time or some of our resources. And it's whatever wins when there is more than one thing that we could do with that time or that resource. That, by definition, is what we're devoted to. Now, by no means are all of those bad things, of course, but there are a few things that we need to realise about them. So, number one, everything in our lives competes with everything else in our lives. And it competes for our affections, or, as we might put it, for our devotion. Number two, when people say, I don't have time for something, they're right. We don't have time, which is why we have to make time. There is no time. It has to be manufactured. But you know, the things that we always make time for, the things that always win, whenever there is a choice to be made, those are the things that we're devoted to. And then number three, too much of anything that is otherwise a positive thing in our life becomes a negative thing. And especially when we kid ourselves that it's something we obviously have to do. Now, we have a friend called Jason Clark, very good friend, and he is a motorcycle enthusiast. He goes to the Isle of Man TT races, and he's a race scrutineer and all that sort of thing. And Jason has what he calls a motorcycle-shaped world. And what he means by that is that at the start of every year, he puts into his diary all of the various club events and the races that he's committed to, and he orientates the rest of his year around them. Because he's dedicated to his motorcycling, he has a motorcycle-shaped world. He shapes the rest of his life around it. So it determines the choices that he makes whenever there's something else that is potentially in competition. It's what goes in his diary first and what determines whether or not he's available for anything else. So that is what dedication and devotion look like in a motorcycle-shaped world. So the question I was wondering this week is, what does dedication and devotion look like for someone who's a Christian? And I think the answer to that depends on how we define a Christian. If we define a Christian as someone who believes in Jesus, then, to be honest, there's really no reason for it to have any effect on, at all on what our time and our resources get devoted to. If it's all about believing something, then we can relegate anything in the Christian life that involves doing something into a separate optional category. If it's all about believing something, then what I do with my time and my resources is discretionary. But if we define a Christian a bit differently, if we define a Christian as someone who inhabits a Jesus-shaped world, then the implications are a bit different. If you're a Christian here this morning, you might like to ask yourself, 
what kind of Christianity you've been sold, what kind of idea of Christianity or definition of a Christian you've bought into. Is it a Christianity that is all about believing the right things with no real impact on what I do with my time and my resources? Where any investment of my time and my resources into the kingdom is, not to put too fine a point on it, doing God a favour. Because it's my time and it's my resources and I'm the Lord of those. Or is it a Christianity in which Jesus is Lord of everything, not just Lord of what I believe? So I want to come back to challenging this idea that the time we've got available to devote to anything is the time we've got left over after all these things that we have to do. This idea that devotion is only something that's happening at the very margins. And what I want to suggest to you is that in life in general, there is no neutral space. I want to suggest to you that everything in life is contested. That everything in life is in competition for our affections. And that it's actually our affections and not our beliefs. It's the things that we love the most that determine what we do. If you're a Christian and you believe in the power of spiritual forces, I want to suggest to you that we have a personal enemy who disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11:14. And what I think that means is that he's figured out that his best work is done when he takes things that are good in themselves, so they're not bad things as such, they're not deeds of darkness or evil things, He takes things that are good in themselves and he kids us into thinking that because they're good in themselves, then it's obviously always fine to do them, even when they end up filling our lives to the exclusion of the kingdom of God. He's fooling us into allowing things that are good in themselves to compete with the kingdom and because they're good, we allow them to win. And so the kingdom gets squeezed to the very margins of our life. I want to suggest to you this morning that everything in life is in play. Everything in life is in competition for our devotion and that it's Satan who wants us to think that all that's being competed for is our beliefs. Because if he can relegate and contain Jesus to our private inner world without it impacting on what we do with our time and our resources, then he successfully neutralized us as Christians without us even being aware of it. We see examples throughout the Bible. We don't have time to look at many of them today, but we see examples throughout the Bible that um, the, this idea that the whole of life is a contested space with no neutral zone. So, for example, when Jesus is asked... What's the most important commandment in the Old Testament? He answers it like this. He says, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Quick show of hands. Who knew that was how Jesus answered that question? Hands up if you did. Yeah. Keep your hand up if you also know that neither of those are in the Ten Commandments. 
Now, according to the rabbis, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. The ones that we know as the Ten Commandments are in Exodus 20, and they're repeated in Deuteronomy 5. But Jesus, when he was asked that question, took one from Deuteronomy 6 and one from Leviticus 19. And he said that everything else, every other commandment about what it means to live right, including the famous ten, depends on these two. So everything to do with living right, all of the instructions and guidelines that God gave his people in the Old Testament and that Jesus affirmed in the New, everything is summed up in these two commandments, he said. And they're all to do with how we go about loving God. Don't you think it's interesting that he didn't choose commandments that were all about don't do this and don't do that? Isn't it interesting that the first and most important thing that God wants for us is that we should love him? So what does that look like? Well, this verse tells us. Loving God with all of our heart means that our passions are involved. Our emotions are involved. So please don't even think about having an emotion-free relationship with Jesus because we can't love without emotion, can we? It's only emotionalism that we don't want. But loving God is a lot more than that. That's only number one on the list. Number two, loving God with all our soul. That means that our will is involved as well. We're not just led by our emotions. The soul is where we make decisions, where we decide what to do. So we have to love God with our decision-making as well. Number three, it means loving him with all our mind. Your mind is not the enemy of your faith, as some Christians might want to tell you. But the Bible does talk about taking every thought captive to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10. Because our mind is contested as well as our emotions and our will. And then number four, it means loving him with all of our strength as well. What do we use our strengths for? Doing stuff. Loving God involves doing stuff. It's not just coming to church for whatever it is, 75 minutes a week. Not just listening to Christian podcasts. Not just going to Christian conferences and praying for our personal needs. And then last but not least, it's also interesting how Jesus answers this question. And remember, the question he's asked is, which is the single most important commandment? He answers the question with two. And I think that's because the way that God sees things, you really can't separate them. You can't be loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength if you're not loving your neighbor with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength as well. And you know, loving your neighbor isn't just something that happens in our head any more than loving God is something that just happens in our head. It's not about our beliefs. I believe in loving my neighbor. I believe in loving God. Please don't let's kid ourselves that any of this is about beliefs. After all, Satan believes it. 
He just never does it. Loving my neighbor means actually doing stuff to love the person sitting next to you. Real, actual people. People who have names and needs. It means our passions being involved, our will being involved, our mind being involved, and our strength being involved. It means doing stuff, devoting our time and our resources to make stuff happen. So if we're a Christian and we've seen Jesus telling us that these are the most important things to shape and form what our lives should look like, then we need to ask ourselves from time to time how we're doing. Because, as I said earlier, there is no neutral zone. Everything in our lives is contested space. Every decision in life is in continuous competition between the will of God and alternative choices. Between living in a Jesus-shaped world or a something-else-shaped world. So what is the competition that we face? Well, it isn't worshipping Satan or the occult or horoscopes or anything else obvious like that. The competition comes from two far more subtle directions. One is from things that aren't bad in themselves. But they become bad. They become the enemy of the kingdom whenever we're letting them have free reign in our lives. Whenever we assume that they are always good and that they're neutral in the effect they have on our Christian life. So we automatically allow them always to have precedence. And that can include many of the things that we looked at earlier. Our work, our children seeing our friends and our families, our leisure time and our hobbies, our weekends away, going shopping, washing our hair, catching up with our box sets and taking our children to every conceivable sport and club and sleepover. All of these can be the things that compete with the kingdom. So that's one direction that this competition comes from. Not that... Any of these things are wrong in themselves, of course. Not at all. So please don't mishear me on what I'm saying here. Washing our hair is important. Looking after our children and allowing them to do stuff is also important as well. But every time we're making a decision about devoting time or resources to one of these things... That decision is not being taken in a neutral space. It's not obviously okay. It's potentially competing with the kingdom and it's potentially competing with us and our families being able to live in a Jesus-shaped world if we unthinkingly give any and all of these things free reign in our lives. And then the second source of competition between living in a Jesus-shaped world and a something-else-shaped world is when that something-else-shaped world is actually a me-shaped world. And this is where defining a Christian as someone who just believes the right things is so insidious. And if you look at the dictionary definition of the word insidious, it says that it means something that creeps up on you in a gradual, subtle way, but with very harmful effects. 
The main competition to our Christian lives being defined as people who live in a Jesus-shaped world is not living in a Satan-shaped world. That's not what happens. It's living in a me-shaped world. Half the time without us even realising that that is actually what we've ended up doing. And what goes with that so often is deceiving ourselves that so long as I sincerely believe the right things in my private inner world, as long as I love God deep down, then it's okay to be living in a me-shaped world with my time and my resources revolving around me. Let me close, if I may, with just one last example to illustrate what I've been saying, that our lives are contested ground for the kingdom of God. I want to look at one of the Ten Commandments. And it's actually the very first one in the list. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, just like when Jesus was asked for that one most important commandment, I'm also cheating very slightly. Obviously, I have good precedence with the Son of God who did it himself. Um, But I am slightly cheating because uh, this passage I've just read is traditionally recognized as two commandments. But I think that they're really one because they're actually dealing with the same thing. Now, I bet if I was to ask for a show of hands... Who's ever made an idol and bowed down to it and worshipped it? Almost nobody would put their hand up. But if I reframe that question as who's ever allowed something else to take the place of God in their life, something that isn't really a God at all, but it functions that way, it absorbs our devotion, it shapes our world, it receives the priority in our diaries. It's what always ends up winning whenever there's competition for what we do. Well then, maybe most of us would end up putting our hands up. And that idol, that other God, might well be me. If, in reality, whatever our beliefs may be saying, if, in reality, most of my time and resources are devoted to loving me with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and my strength, then what Jesus is getting is basically just the crumbs that fall from the table of my life. And the reason that God says this, the reason he says, don't make things in your life into idols, don't make other things into a God in your life, is not just because he's some kind of control freak. That isn't why he says it. It's because he's jealous for us at the end of that verse that we read earlier. So he doesn't want other so-called gods to be taking his place in our affections. And you know, if we do decide that we will prioritize living in a Jesus-shaped world, then everything else will find its proper place. Our children won't suffer. Our work and our finances won't suffer. Our families won't suffer. Washing our hair might occasionally suffer. 
Our entertainment might occasionally suffer. Box sets will certainly suffer. But being in the right place with Jesus is the best place for our families to be and for our children to be. If Jesus is at the centre, then everything else will find its good and rightful place around him.